The Hulk, uh, Bruce Banner, or, you know, if you keep up with the comics now, Amadeus Cho is one of the more well-known superheroes, and rightfully so. He taps into the internal struggle many people face in keeping their monster at bay. And at the end of the day, most people know him for his ability to smash stuff. And as with most superpowers, his powers originated from a failed scientific experiment. In this case, the detonation of an experimental gamma bomb. A bomb that shoots gamma rays. He was caught up in the explosion when was of course affected and mutated into the creature we all know now as the Hulk. Gamma rays, which are extremely high energy photons. If you're familiar with the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, of which visible light is a part, then gamma rays are at the far right, past visible light, past ultraviolet light, past x-rays. And they have the highest energy and the, and the highest frequency. They, they also apparently bestow upon simple scientists amazing powers. The Hulk... Super strength. Daredevil, radioactive waste in the eyes, gave him psychic echolocation. Spider-Man, radioactive spider, bit him, does whatever a spider can. Fantastic Four, cosmic rays, which are even higher energy than gamma rays, uh, gave them invisibility, endurance, stretchiness and combustion. Firestorm, nuclear plant meltdown, gave him transfiguration. Johnny Alpha, strontium-90 fallout, can read minds, see through objects and can emit alpha particles from his eyes for some reason. Knuckles the Echidna, in the Archie Comics Sonic the Hedgehog comic books, had his egg irradiated with chaos energy from the Master Emerald by his father, granting him powers and abilities far beyond even his own lineage had as the Crystal's guardian. So it is clear that in fiction, gamma rays, cosmic rays, nuclear fallouts, all sorts of radiation cause superpowers, and I, I can't stress this enough, in fiction. Because at the time, most of these characters were first created, uh, radiation was a new exciting thing, you know, people, people didn't know what it did, they just knew that it glowed, that it was pretty, you know, they used it in toothpaste, lipsticks, beauty products, to give you a, a nice, healthy, radioactive glow. If, if they could put it in something, then they would. They, they put it in suppositories, they put it in condoms, wool, woolen jumpers filled with radiation. It didn't matter. And, and my personal favorite is cigarettes filled with delicious, delicious radium. But let's look even further back, dear listener. Let's look further back before the time radio mania had taken over the world. Let's look back to the year of 1867, more specifically November the 7th, because this was the day that Maria Sklodowska was born. Yes, hello, my name is Jeremy Hughes, and in this episode of Churning Out the Chat, Science History Edition, we will be talking about the life and times of Marie Curie. Out the chat. Science history edition. Marie Curie was born in Poland in the year 1867. Now, at the time, Poland was under Russian occupation, and indeed had been ever since its founding in 1815. Now, we're talking like full on occupation here, like any 
any opposition to the Emperor of Russia was squashed. The local laws were just disregarded by Russian officials. We're talking the freedom of press being revoked, uh, preventatory censorship being put in place. There were uprisings, of course, to, to fight off the Russians by the Polish, but, but the Polish were defeated, and every time the Russians took this as an excuse to take more and more control. And it was into the state that Maria Sklodowska was born. Uh, her father was a physicist and mathematician. Her mother was also an educator, but she died, sadly, of tuberculosis when Maria was quite young. But, but Maria was a bright kid. She, she excelled at her studies and was accelerated through the school system, learning alongside kids many years older than her. She eventually graduated first in her class at age 15, and she wanted to continue her studies to follow in her father's footsteps. But Poland, at the time, did not allow higher education for girls. So she said, screw that. Screw you, Poland. I'm going to study anyway. So Maria and her sister joined the floating university, which operated in Poland. Now, the, the floating university is a sort of hardcore underground, grungy, higher education service. Think like Fight Club, um, except I guess they just gather in people's homes instead of under bridges, and instead of fighting each other, they learn from books and teachers and stuff. It was set up to give the youth, you know, an actual education, one that wasn't influenced by the censorship of the Russian occupation, and also where women could attend, which, you know, I, I just think it's brilliant. So, the Flying University gets its name from the nature of the university, because they would often change the locations of the lessons uh, from house to house, so as not to get arrested by the Russians, because what they were doing was illegal. So, very illegal that the, the Russians did not like it. They wanted to squash it. Squash it. So, Maria and her sister uh, finished their studies at this wonderfully underground university, and came out of it all the more smarter. However, neither of them had a piece of paper. So really, the whole thing was moot, as the university was not recognized by anyone. I mean, it, it couldn't be. So instead, Maria and her sister made a pact. Basically, her sister moves to Paris to study, to study medicine. And, and whilst she is doing this, Maria is working as a tutor and a housekeeper back in Poland with her Father, she helps to pay for her sister's medical school education, and, and for five years this went on. And after five years, it was Maria's turn, and so Maria left home, she kissed her dear old pa goodbye, and she set off for the great city of Paris. So she enrolls in the University of Paris under the name of Marie, um, because she thinks it sounds more French. By this time, her sister was married and owed a house, and as per their agreement, she helped Marie pay for her studies. The, the original agreement had Marie living with her sister and husband, and after a while, Marie chose not to live with them anymore, instead choosing to live in a drafty old apartment which was closer to the university, so she had more time to study. Isn't that... That's studious of her. Good on her. I mean, she barely survives. She lives off bread and butter, which is like the 19th century equivalent of me goreng. Uh, she describes her living conditions, and I quote, The room I lived in was in a garette, very cold in winter, for it was insufficiently heated by a small stove, which often lacked coal. 
During a particularly rigorous winter, it was not unusual for the water to freeze in the basin in the night. To be able to sleep, I was obliged to pile all my clothes on the bed covers. In the same room, I prepared my meals with the aid of an alcohol lamp and a few kitchen utensils. These meals were often reduced to bread with a cup of chocolate, eggs, or fruit. I had no help in housekeeping, and I myself carried the little coal I used up the six flights. I mean, that's alright, though. Like, a cup of chocolate? I wouldn't... Anyway, as I said before, Marie is a bloody genius. She aces everything, and in 1893, she gets her master's in physics, the first woman to do so, and is offered a research contract in the Gabriel Laboratory. Again, this is unheard of. She receives a fellowship, and the following year, in 1894, she also gets a bachelor in mathematics. So Marie then meets her soon-to-be husband, Pierre, as a part of her work in electromagnetism for the Gabriel Laboratory. Pierre was a French-born physicist, and at the time when they met, in 1894, he was working as the chair of industry physics and chemistry, and indeed had completed his thesis on electromagnetism, which was why Marie had come to him to learn about the topic. So he offers her a place in his lab, and after a year, as labs happen, they get married. And it's just sweet all around, it's adorable, everyone is lovey-dovey, they have two kids, one of which wins the Nobel Prize, um, like, not as a child, later when they're grown up, and the other becomes a pianist, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, let's zoom back to 18... 97. So all the while Marie is doing her thing, there is another man, William Rontgen, who was doing his thing. You see, some years prior, in 1895, William Rontgen set the world ablaze with his discovery of penetrating rays, this weird new phenomena that could penetrate solid objects and produce photographs of bones in human hands. They theorized that these rays, or X-rays as we now know them, were a result of luminescent excitation. That the sun was exciting these materials, which would then emit these rays. Uh, in a way, they were right, as the X-rays produced by Rontgen were a result of electron bombardment. So as science often does, this captured the imagination of many other scientists who set out to find more of these mysterious materials. Uh, one of these scientists was a man, Henry Becquerel, uh, but what he found was quite interesting. He found uranium salts that produced these penetrating rays, whether or not they were exposed to light. So then the question arose, where were these rays coming from? If not from the excitation of the sun, how could these materials seemingly spontaneously create these rays, create energy. This was a non-solar source of energy, the first of its kind. Physics had been toting around this conservation of energy for a very long time, and, you know, you can't create or destroy energy. It just gets moved around. And physics had been holding on to this forever, and it wasn't ready to give up on that fight just yet. And keep in mind that this is almost a full decade before the discovery of the atomic nuclei. So they had to somehow figure out where this energy was coming from before they even knew anything about electrons or, 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 or protons. So Becquerel 
theorize that it came from the uranium atom itself. But like long ago. That the uranium atom had somehow stored the energy from the sun and only now was releasing it as these penetrating rays. Uh, This is where Curie comes in. Uh, She hypothesizes that it is a new form of energy, something hitherto unknown, and it was to this that she dedicated her thesis to in 1897. What is radioactivity, and what is its source of its energy? And to do this, she set the task for herself to extract new radioactive substances and to continuously study them. Now, at the time, many people were trying to find new radioactive sources, and from Rontgen's previous experiments, they knew these radioactive sources emitted penetrating rays that could penetrate black paper and expose film on the other side. And as such, the easiest way to discover new radioactive sources was simply to just get any object and leave it on a piece of paper with film underneath and see if the film would develop. Uh, But I mean, many, many false positives arose from this. Uh, Zinc sulfide, calcium sulfide were both claimed to emit these penetrating rays when in actual fact it's more likely factors such as uh, moisture or the the, the pressure that the substances had on the films themselves, or the vapours of ammonia in the atmosphere sensitising the film to produce these blurry images. Marie looks at all of this and she dismisses this method as a way to discover new radioactive sources, and instead sets out on her own path. Rutherford... Uh, of Rutherford experiment fame, funny that, had discovered that the uranium rays that Becquerel had discovered caused gases to become feeble conductors of electricity. So the dream team of Marie and Pierre set into motion, and Pierre invented a device that was the first to quantitatively measure radioactive intensity. And what's more, the results were reproducible. That's the most important aspect. The contraption itself was fairly simple. It consisted of two circular metal plates that ran parallel to each other. Uh, What they would do, they would get their substance and grind it into a fine powder. The radioactive powder was then spread uniformly among these plates. A potential difference would then be applied And when the circuit was completed, a current would then run through the air in between these plates. This current was then opposed by voltage from a stressed piezoelectric quartz crystal. The more stressed it was by way of weights being placed on it, the more current it opposed. The mass it took to make this crystal cancel out the current flowing through the air was thus a measure of how much radioactivity was in an object. It should be said that Pierre Curie had worked extensively with these electric quartz crystals in the past, so he was well used to them by now. The currents which the Curies were measuring was on the order of 10 to the negative 11 amps, which is, is simply phenomenal given the equipment at the time. Presently, they were working in a cobbled together shed that was falling apart, and they would spend four years working there. Marie Curie writes about her working conditions, and I quote, The school of physics could give us no suitable premises, but for lack of anything better, 
the director permitted us to use an abandoned shed which had been in service as a dissecting room of the School of Medicine. Its glass roof did not afford complete shelter against rain. The heat was suffocating in summer, and the bitter cold of winter was only a little lessened by the iron stove, except in its immediate vicinity. There was no question of obtaining the needed proper apparatus in common use by chemists. We simply had some old pinewood tables with furnaces and gas burners. We had to use the adjoining yard for those of our chemical operations that involved producing irritating gases. Even then, the gas often filled our shed. With this equipment, we entered on our exhausting work. Yet it was in this miserable old shed that we passed the best and happiest years of our life, devoting our entire days to our work. End quote. Doesn't that just fill you with joy? The best and happiest years of our life. But enough of these sentiments on how amazing research is, because, I mean, we all know that it is. Let's get back to the fun and dandy science. So armed with their device that measured radioactivity, the Curies set out to find new radioactive materials. She first tested all the common metallic and non-metallic elements and, and then moved on to the rare ones. And from all her experiments, she only found uranium and thorium to be radioactive. She also looked at different chemical compounds, uh, but she came to the same conclusion. What she found was quite interesting. Her studies with this device told her that the ionization current, the level of radioactivity of a substance, was actually independent on the thickness of the powder that was spread on her device. It didn't matter if you had a small sliver of the sample or a massive chunk of it, because, I mean, you would think that more of the radioactive substance you had, the more radioactive the total sample would be, but... But this wasn't the case. The level of radioactivity of these uniformly spread samples were independent of the thickness. So Marie concluded correctly that the radiation being detected, alpha particles in this case, was not penetrating the higher levels of the sample, but instead being absorbed by the sample itself before it could affect the electrical conductivity of the air. She writes, It may be concluded that the absorption of uranium rays by the material that emits them is very great, since the rays coming from deep layers do not produce a significant effect. End quote. Her studies lead her to believe that there was another radioactive element hidden in pitch blend due to its increased activity. So, pitch blend, I guess, is a type of uranium ore, as it were. It's a a compound that's filled with many different elements. Curie theorized that if an ore had greater radioactivity than pure uranium, then it must contain other radioactive substances besides uranium. Uh, They also had to be present in small quantities, otherwise they would have been detected chemically. And as such, they must be more strongly radioactive atom for atom than uranium. Because keep in mind, she had tested pretty much all the other elements, you know, that they knew of at the time. And only uranium and thorium were radioactive. So 
if this ore had greater radioactivity than pure uranium, then there must be some unknown element with greater radioactivity in small quantities. The one flaw in her logic is that these stronger elements were not mixed in with the uranium in the ore, as it were. I mean, eons ago, uranium and this element weren't mashed together, and there they stayed. The the polonium and radium, in this case, had been created from the atomic decay of the uranium itself. And unknown to Marie, this process was still going on. The pure uranium samples she had measured earlier were undergoing this radioactive decay and creating these new elements that had greater radioactivity than the uranium itself. Of course, the half-life of uranium is enormous. It's 4.47 billion years, and in radium, it's around 1,600 years. So in this specific case, for all intents and purposes, the radioactivity of uranium uh, can be treated as a static case when, in actual fact, it is constantly changing. So yes, Marie was wrong in that she assumed that these elements were mixed together in trace amounts uh, eons and eons ago, when in actual fact, it's actually the decaying of the uranium that produces them. But on paper, they're wrong. Although, let's be honest, it doesn't really matter in any practical situation when you have the half-life of uranium being 4.47 billion years. You can pretty much treat it as static. And again, when Marie was looking at this pitch blend, this amalgamation of radioactive materials, she was still looking at it from a chemical standpoint. She managed to isolate radium from the pitch blend by its chemical similarities to barium. Wherever the barium went, the radium went, and it was incredibly difficult for her to separate the radium from the barium in the ore. And this confused her, because... She could not find any trace of radioactivity in barium chloride, even after crystallization of 50 kilograms of barium chloride down to 10 grams of the most pure, insoluble crystals using the same method which she uses to isolate the pure radium chloride from the uranium ore, she finds nothing. It's not radioactive. She writes, and I quote, This chloride showed no activity in our measuring apparatus. It therefore contained no radium. Radium is therefore absent from the ores of barium. End quote. So the mystery remains. Even though chemically, radium and barium are very similar, barium ores contain no trace at all of radium. Of course, we now know that is because radioactivity is not a result of the chemical nature of the elements, but of the stability of the atom. Marie did what anyone else would have done in this situation, and certainly what I have done many a time during my master's, and that is to drop the whole point completely and promise to yourself that you will return to this in the future, but never do. I should touch on how Marie actually separated the purified radium from the pitch bend, as that was one of her thesis statements, to isolate new radioactive elements. So after figuring out the similarities between radium 
and barium. She did this from uh, empirical experimentation. The radium was extracted along with the barium, and this whole process was brilliant. So the radium and barium was extracted as the carbonates and the sulfates, yeah? And then the radium was separated from the barium by fractional crystallization of the chlorides. Now, I don't do chemistry. I'm not a chemist, but this process here is heavily reported on all the texts of Marie Curie because of how backbreakingly laborious it all was. Let me walk you through it. The raw materials they were using, the pitch blend, was incredibly expensive. So the Curies worked with the waste of the pitch blend. After the uranium had been extracted from the pitch blend for use, you know, elsewhere, the resulting material was a brown, insoluble residue. And the Austrian government, who owned the mine, graciously gave it to the Curies for their research. So Curie would use 20 kilos or so at a time. She would throw the pitch blend in large cast iron basins and stir the boiling solutions with a large iron bar for hours and hours and hours, you know. It was first boiled in sodium carbonate, which got rid of some of the aluminium, lead, and calcium, as well as some of the sulfates. The the insoluble carbonates and sulfates were then boiled in hydrochloric acid, and the residue that was left over was then washed in water and then boiled in sodium carbonate again, which gave alkaline earth carbonates, uh, which were then once again washed and diluted in hydrochloric acid. This was then filtered and filtrated through sulfuric acid to produce these crude sulfates filled with barium and radium. But the process was not completed. Taking these sulfates, Marie would once again boil them in sodium carbonate and then hydrochloric acid and then H2S and then and then a chlorine oxidation with ammonia and then more sodium carbonate and hydrochloric acid and then you will evaporate that to dryness and then you do another concentrated hydrochloric acid wash and the residue you get of that are the barium radium chlorides uh, roughly eight kilos per ton of ore residue that you use at the beginning uh, these would then go on to fractional crystallization I mean, look, the point is, is that it was an incredibly long and difficult process, boiling acid, stirring these vats. I shudder to think of the fumes she was inhaling. Indeed, she recalls the time, and I quote, Sometimes I had to spend a whole day mixing a boiling mass with a heavy iron rod nearly as large as myself, end quote. But from this process, she found the purest sample of radium chloride had an activity of order of magnitude 10 to the 6 times that of uranium. And indeed, the actual value is 2.12 times 10 to the 6 times that of uranium, which is phenomenal, given that the equipment they were using, the primitive measuring device measuring a tenth of a gram sample that had been extracted from millions of grams of this terribly crude material. In fact, she writes, and I quote, We succeeded! in extracting from thousands of kilograms of starting material a few decigrams of products, end quote. She went on to determine the atomic weight of this new element, radium, by, and I quote, the classical method of weighing as silver chloride the chlorine contained in a known weight of the anhydrous chloride, end quote. Which, I'm gonna be honest, I have no idea what that means. 
uh, but I have in front of me all her calculations, and they look very swish. Uh, there's lots of numbers, there's lots of addition signs, and she's doing division in some cases. Then I see lots of decimal places. Anyway, she obtained a value of 225 for the atomic weight of radium, which is staggeringly close to the currently accepted value of around 226. So radium, tick, done, amazing, gold stars all around. But Marie had her sights set on a higher prize. She also wanted to take polonium out from this ore, but this proved harder than the radium. Using the same methods as radium, she concludes that, and I quote, There is unfortunately little chance of succeeding in the isolation of polonium by these methods. End quote. Now, there are many reasons why her separation failed, but perhaps the biggest was because they were based on polonium's similarities to bismuth, chemically, at least. Now, I mentioned before the half-lives of uranium and radium, uranium being on the order of billions of years and radium on the order of thousands. Polonium, on the other hand, has a half-life of just 138 days. In equilibrium with uranium, polonium would only be present in one part in 10 to the 10. That is, the decaying of uranium would only produce a minuscule amount of polonium at any given time before it decayed away. In fact, in a ton of ore of raw material, if we assume, say, half is uranium ore, then there would only be 0.05 milligrams of polonium. So extracting this would be incredibly difficult, as it's only present in trace amounts. The polonium also had a nasty tendency to be absorbed by their glassware. However, because their detection machine could only detect powders, they had no way of figuring out how much polonium had been lost to their glassware, if, in fact, they realised any had been lost to their glassware at all. One can only imagine... These vessels now contaminated with polonium, making non-radioactive sources now appear radioactive, further messing with the Curie's results. Very frustrating, indeed. But even after all of this, when they isolated the polonium along with the bismuth nitrate, due to the short half-life of polonium, the radioactivity of the substance would rapidly diminish. It would seemingly just disappear for no real reason, uh, from the Curie's perspective. Anyway, she writes, and I quote, Polonium, once extracted from the blend, diminishes in activity. A specimen of bismuth nitrate containing polonium lost half its activity in 11 months, end quote. And thus, Marie had discovered polonium and radium, and had managed to isolate radium, She finished her doctorate thesis in 1903, and in the same year was awarded the Nobel Prize, along with her husband and Becquerel, for their works on radiation. Now, before I get into the Nobel Prize, I just wanted to focus on a lecture Marie gave in 1900. Here, she talks about where this radioactivity comes from. She says, radioactivity may be some extraordinary chemical reaction in which the atoms actually change. Saying that the alternative that the whole conservation of energy thing no longer applying was no less embarrassing. She concludes by saying, quote, This hypothesis strikes just as serious a blow 
at accepted ideas in physics as the hypothesis of the transformation of elements does at the principles of chemistry, and one can see that the question is not easy to resolve, end quote. So basically, it boils down to, was it the conservation of energy no longer holding true, or was it that the atom could somehow change into other atoms, that this also goes against everything chemistry What's for? So they had to choose. Well, they didn't have to choose. They just did more science. And of course, physics wins. You know, physics always wins. And the atom was found some two years later that it could actually change and transmute into other atoms. Alchemy was alive. It was just bloody expensive. In 1903, Marie Curie, Pierre Curie, and Henry Becquerel were all awarded the Nobel Prize for their discovery and research into radioactivity. Marie also won other prizes, but tragically, in 1906, Pierre was killed in a road accident. Marie writes about it, and I quote, It is impossible for me to express the profoundness and importance of the crisis brought into my life by the loss of the one who had been my closest companion and best friend. Crushed by the blow... I did not feel able to face the future. I could not forget, however, what my husband used sometimes to say, that even deprived of him, I ought to continue my work. She goes on to say, I am working in the laboratory all day long. It is all I can do. I am better off there than anywhere else. I conceive of nothing any more that could give me personal joy, except perhaps scientific work, and even there... No, because if I succeeded with it, I would not endure you not to know it. End quote. But she kept on, and in 1911, was awarded another Nobel Prize, this time in chemistry, in recognition of her services to the advancement of chemistry by the discovery of the elements radium and polonium, by the isolation of radium and the study of the nature and compounds of this remarkable element. The war then happened, and... She, along with one of her daughters, travelled to the troops to administer radioactive treatments, the x-ray vans and whatnot. She lived on to the ripe old age of 65, where she then died from aplastic anemia, from the radiation poisoning she got from carrying vials of radium close to her chest. But what I loved about Marie is her fond memories of the time she spent working in that shed, the sense of wonder that filled her. She says, and I quote, One of our joys was to go into our workroom at night. We then perceived on all sides the feebly luminous silhouettes of the bottles or capsules containing our products. It was really a lovely sight, and one always new to us. The glowing tubes looked like faint fairy lights. End quote. It's a wondrous image, if also an ominous one to be working in that environment, to be on the cusp of human knowledge, to be staring into the unknown and hitting it on the head with a stick, shouting, share with me your secrets until it did so. It's amazing. Well, this has been a brief look at the life of Marie Curie and her work into discovering polonium and radium. My name is Jeremy Hughes, and you've been listening to Churning Out the Chat.